0: Today, uh, we're starting in Revelation. Um, uh, Before digging into the book, though, we need to understand that that John was writing about what he saw. He literally saw these things. It it was a message to the church near the end of the first century to help them endure the persecution of of Emperor Domitian, which... uh, he served between 81 and 96 we think it was revelation was probably written sometime in the 90s 90 ad john was one of the the youngest disciples of jesus and so by this time he is an old man um but um that uh, that we have that word from a first century father that he wrote it about that time makes it pretty certain that that's about when it was written And the book of Revelation tells us of final judgment of mankind in which everyone will be driven to a final decision for or against their creator. But it's also about the arc of history. It's also the big picture um, from a spiritual perspective. Some people obsess over the book of Revelation as if it were the most important book in Scripture, while others avoid it for several reasons. <laughs> I've been on both sides of that. When I was in a cult, I thought I understood all the details of Revelation, and it was my duty to let everybody know the real interpretation of Revelation. But after hearing other interpretations, I realized there were many viewpoints that, that uh, had validity. They had a, as good an argument as mine for their understanding of the passage. I not only became less certain of my interpretation, but I began to worry about those passages that say, you're going to be cursed if you add to the book. And so I kind of stepped back from it. I avoided teaching the book. I read portions of it. I'd read through the book now and then, but and i even taught on the letters to the churches here at wayside in fact even before i became pastor here um i taught uh, downstairs uh, a study on the letters but my uncertainty about the meaning and those mystical descriptions and how they all fit together it, it caused me to avoid it and i i can't tell you how many times i've been asked to preach through revelation and it but I had never read a commentary that I felt really hit, hit it on the head, you know, that I said, wow, this guy got it. He really understood it. So my answer was always that I didn't want to preach it until I uh, understood it better. And then Jory and I went to a conference on preaching apocalyptic literature by the Simeon trust. The Simeon trust is a, a trust that out of Moody seminary that, uh, that helps pastors learn to preach exegetically. And they do different uh, like wisdom literature, uh, the gospels, uh, narrative literature, how to preach those different styles of literature. And that particular seminar was on apocalyptic literature and Jory could get a credit for it at at his seminary. So we went together and as they taught, I began to see that it wasn't so really impossible to understand. But the thing that really helped me to decide to take the leap was that I began to see the book not so much as knowing the details of the future as it was about how to live in this fallen world. I did find some excellent commentaries and I'll, you'll find me quoting a lot from Hamilton, Beale, Carson, uh, I'm, but I'm still not certain about a lot of the details but we need to hear its message, especially today. I think it's a very timely book for us right now. I think we're gonna need it in the days ahead. So think about the first readers and those uh, through the generations that have read this book. Understanding all the symbolism and getting it exactly right. How important was that to their lives? Was the timing of the rapture essential for them to know? What was important is that the message of how to live in this fallen world was needed at the time that they lived. It's important for them to see the big picture, that the world is passing and it's going to be judged and Jesus will reign and we will reign with him. That's what we need to see and to believe. It's important to know the genre of a text to be able to interpret it. There's parables, there's fables, there's sci-fi, there's beatitudes, there's poetry, etc. So when you're reading a kind of literature, you need to understand what type of literature you're looking at. Most, most is intuitively understood. You know, we watch the news and we know when a commercial comes on. We know the difference. We can tell editorial from a news report, even though they're trying to blend the two lately. But what if you never faced a particular genre before? You see, first and second century Jews and Christians used a style of literature that we refer to as apocalyptic literature. And the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It overlaps with the genre of prophecy and exhortation, but the bulk of it is what the first and second century readers would call apocalyptic literature. There are standards, uh, symbols in this genre, in other books as well. They use the same types of symbols for the same meaning, such as uh, horns, almost always referring to kings or kingdoms. And waters refer to the chaotic mass of humanity. You'll see stars referred to as messengers and so forth. There are only partial quotes in the book of Revelation from the Old Testament. But there are more reference to Old Testament passages in the book of Revelation than in any other New Testament book. The genre sometimes refers to heaven's, the genre of apocalyptic literature refers to heaven's view of all of human history, God's overarching perspective, and sometimes refers to heaven's view of, uh, of uh, using metaphors of good and evil. There are five or six principal orientations among Bible believers of today about how to look at Revelation There's futuristic view, the preterist view, which is uh, already, everything's already passed, it's already all fulfilled. There's historical view, that this is uh, about church history. There's principles of God's administration. And there's historical background of the first century, while at the same time predicting future events. Those are all different ways to look at it. Now you're going to find as I go through it I'm I lean on the last one historical background of the first century while at the same time predicting future events. So let's stand and read Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 through 8. Are you ready? And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So so verse one again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to, to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So is this a revelation of Jesus or from Jesus? The context shows that it's from. God gave him. John's gospel always shows the father giving to Jesus who gives to us, it's given to an angel to give to John to show us how to live during the coming trials. Apocalyptic literature often has an angel interpret or relay the message. We saw that when we studied Zechariah and further back when we studied Daniel. However, one could argue that it's also a revelation of Jesus. For throughout the book, we see something of Jesus. The Greek word translated as revelation, the word apocalypsis, which means to unveil. Jesus used the word in Matthew 11:25 to 27, and in Matthew chapter 16, 16 and 17, and there it was translated revealed. I believe we could take it both to as unveil or to reveal Jesus to us, and also to reveal the conclusion of history. One time I here in Wayside, I preached a sermon based on D.A. Carson's entitled, Jesus in Revelation. Nearly every chapter of Revelation tells us something about Jesus. However, apocalypse is usually a description of the end of history. But this book is much more than that. Guthrie writes that Revelation unveils the opposition we can expect to escalate, the endurance we need to cultivate, the judgment we need to celebrate, the victory in which we will participate, the enemy Jesus will annihilate, The sorrow, he will alleviate. The creation, he will regenerate. The marriage, he will consummate. And the home, we can anticipate. Sharing with him forever. What a great quote that is. That just summed up the whole book of Revelation. We can go home now. (laughs) God gave this revelation to Jesus to show his servants what must soon take place. We saw in James that the coming of the Lord was at hand, right? And yet, 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for the Lord to return. And Peter tells us why in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wanting that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus told us that no man knows the day or hour of his return, that only the Father knows. But we are aware of the brevity of this life. Amen? We saw that in James. Our life is like a, a mist that's here one moment and vanishes the next. Our time on, in this life passes so quickly. We need to heed the message of this book. There are two end time signs, however, given by the Apostle Paul in the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2. He tells us That before we are gathered together to the Lord, there will be two things. Two events are going to take place. There will be a great falling away, and the man of lawlessness will be revealed. That's the term for the Antichrist. And while the church has always expected the return of Christ, we should be aware that these two signs will precede his return. Verse 2, who bore, that is John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So this book is John telling us what the angel showed him of God's word and of Jesus' testimony. It's as if the angel just pulled back the curtain of heaven and time and showed John the whole picture of what God's word declares and what Jesus is doing. The verse, that verse two, is a summary really of the whole entire book. Revelation is God's word and Jesus' testimony. As Jesus is the word made flesh, the two are really conveying the same message of the triumphant God over evil and the sanctification of the bride of Christ. The words here translated witness, And testimony both come from the same Greek word from which we get our word martyr. The people of that day who were a bold witness of Jesus' lordship were often martyred. And so this word to be a witness uh, came to be our word for martyrdom. One who lays down their life for the faith we'll see a multitude of martyrs in Revelation. Is there enough evidence to convict us that Jesus is Lord of our lives? It's significant that much of the language of these first two verses come from the Greek version of Daniel chapter two, verses 28 and 29 and verse 45. Um, at the time that John wrote, the entire Old Testament had been translated into Greek. About 200 BC, it had been translated. And most of the, the Jewish world spoke Greek. Uh, a lot of the Jewish world no longer spoke Aramaic. And so John refers to the Greek version we call the Septuagint when, when he does quotes or, or uses phrases that come out of the Old Testament. In those passages in Daniel, it says to show what must come to pass. And since the disciples understood that the latter days began in Pentecost, uh, as was preached in Acts uh, chapter 2, John changed Daniel's expression, what must come to pass, to quickly. You see? Because they believed it, it could happen at any time. Verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. This verse promises that those who read aloud and hear and keep what is written in this book will be blessed. Anybody here want to be blessed? I do. And so I'm reading it aloud to you. And if you hear and keep it, you this promises you a blessing. I know when I read aloud, it helps me focus and go slower. And it's probably meant because the singular reader and plural hearers is probably referring to being read in the congregation, as many of the attendees would be illiterate. The blessing is on those who hear and keep. So to keep means to observe, to guard, to hold fast. Prophecy in this case is is not like we usually interpret it as predicting the future events, but rather God revealing again how we should live in the present. This is the more common use of the word in the Bible. Literally, the Greek word means to speak forth, profemi, to speak out. And while it may refer to situations in the future, the emphasis is on how God is directing us to respond. Beale wrote, John's witness to the heavenly commentary concerning what God has done in Christ is not intended as an apocalyptic curiosity to tantalize the intellect, but to inform Christians about how God wants them to live in the light of recent redemptive history. For the time is near, and time is near indicates the readers would have seen it applying to their day. This is how each generation should read it. How does it apply to us today? The apocalypse may be in our time, or it may not be, because none of us knows the day or hour. Now, it certainly appears to be drawing close, but throughout history, they have thought the same thing. That's why we should act on it, on what we hear from the book, because we don't know. It could be tomorrow. As we will see in the letters, Jesus does come in judgment even now, though we don't see him physically. And he will come again in glory at the conclusion of this age. Verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. John gives his greeting of grace and peace to the seven churches that were in Asia at the time. If we look at a map of these churches in Asia, uh, which is, is now Turkey, this region, we'll see that if you were going to deliver the letter, the, the order of the churches given in the, in the letter, excuse me, is as if you were traveling in a circular route. It starts at Ephesus, ends in Laodicea as the final city. However, in apocalyptic literature, numbers are used very significantly and seven always indicates fullness. Though the book literally went to seven churches, it's for the whole church, seven being that fullness number, all the church in all the world throughout the church age. We'll see the number seven come out throughout the book. The numerical complexity of of biblical Hebrew and Greek revolves around this number seven and multiples of seven. In fact, it's it's a literary wonder, as Ivan Panin discovered, how every section of every part of Scripture has those multiples of seven in it. One of the early church fathers tells us that John wrote this at the end of Emperor Domitian's reign, which is around 96. Domitian, like many of the emperors, was a degenerate. He ordered those watching his brother die to to leave him alone so he would die alone. He seduced his niece, made her abort his baby, which caused her death. He had a man executed for mildly mocking him. And when he found one of the Vestal virgins had a lover, he buried her alive. And yet he insisted on being called Lord and God. You had to address him. Emperor Domitian, Lord and God. There are disagreements as to the extent of the persecution under his reign, but we know there was always the threat that Christians could be executed for not proclaiming Caesar as Lord. And you can imagine how it would be impossible for a Christian to say that uh, an emperor, especially one like Domitian, was Lord and God. There was also poverty that resulted from the loss of one's place in the guilds for refusing to burn incense to the guild's God. Grace and peace for the believers living under these kind of conditions could only come from one who is and who was and who is to come, the eternal one. And the same is true for us. That's why we're... almost the whole chapter is a picture is introducing the Godhead to us and especially Jesus is because how can we face things in this world unless we know who holds us in the palm of his hand? The one who was and is and is to come reminds us of the name of God that was revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter three, the I am, the I am that I am. He's always is, he's unbound by time or location. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who delivered Israel from Egypt and led them through the wilderness while supplying all their needs and giving them the promised land is the same God today. Is to come is not so much as just saying in the future, but rather the one who will reign forever. In fact, later on in Revelation, we're going to see the one who, who was and is and reigns. They substitute reigns for is to come because his return ushers in his eternal reign on the earth. The Apostle Paul began most of his letters with the same type of greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next verse begins, and from Jesus Christ. So here when he's referring to this one who was and is and is to come, he's talking about the Father, the I Am. The greeting is also from the seven spirits that are before the throne. First we have God the Father, And then is added the seven spirits before the throne, which represents the Holy Spirit. Seven again throughout this book is fullness, the complete fullness of the Spirit. There's nothing lacking in the Holy Spirit. He's one with the Father and the Son, who's added in the next text, verse, grace and peace from the Trinity, It was what the churches of every age need. We need grace that leads us to salvation, grace to grow in Christ and grace not to compromise, but to finish the race before us. We need peace in our hearts while the world rages around us. We need peace with God that is ours because of what Jesus has done for us. And we need that peace of knowing our lives are in God's hands so that people see that peace in us while we endure life's struggles. Verse five, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus is the faithful witness of God's nature. That's why Jesus could tell Thomas, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. His death was the greatest expression of God's love. This book mostly speaks of victory through martyrdom. It's a book on how to face opposition, starting with Jesus' example. He is the firstborn of a resurrected body. The firstborn in Scripture was the one who had the right um to represent the father of the family. Though it usually was determined by uh, birth order, the title could be given to someone who was born later if the firstborn offended the father. In Jesus' case, he always pleased the father in all that he did and said. He was the first human to receive a transformed eternal body. Jesus is already ruler of the kings of the earth. That's sure good to know. Amen. Because we look at things today and we think, oh my gosh, it's totally out of control. No, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. All authority is his. But there is still opposition. This book has been most cherished during times of persecution. And we should know that he who loves us is the ruler over kings, even Domitian, even The evil Nero. And yet, Jesus has set their limits. They can only go as far as he allows them. John goes on to tell us three things Jesus has done for us. First, and probably the most wonderful, he loves us. It's present tense. Right now. Right where you are. He loves you. Oh, how he loves you and me. He chose to set his love on us and to make us his bride. Now, I don't know why. I can't explain it, but I'm so thankful he did. And because of that love, he also washed or freed us. The words sound the same in Greek. um, either is applicable and both are an expression of his love. Delivered from the burden, from slavery to sin and from the judgment our sins deserve. Because the soul that sins must die and the life of the flesh is in the blood, Jesus paid our sin debt with his blood. And that sets us free from our debt that separated us from God and washes us clean in God's sight. It was the only way we could be justified before God. And that's why God sent his Son out of love so that we could justly be reconciled to God, which is to be at peace with God and to be under his grace. John declared the gospel in these two verses, and that's more than we could ever merit, more than enough, superabundant grace. But there's one more thing he did for us he made us a kingdom. Verse. Six, he made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In his love for us, he made us a kingdom. Uh, Beal argues that it should be translated, he made us kings. That means we are Jesus' subjects, but also that we reign with him. And because he's good and only does good, we have the most beneficent king benef- beneficent king, we could ever hope to have. In addition, we are priests to the Father. That means we always have access to him, as the author of Hebrews described. We can intercede for the lost. We can pray for his will into the earth. It also means that he provides for us. And we offer ourselves as living sacrifices as we minister to him. And because he's done this, John declares his glory and his kingship will be forever. And that's the only real happily ever after. Verse 7. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This verse draws from Zechariah, another book of apocalyptic literature. In chapter 12, Zechariah predicted, this is from uh, chapter 12, verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It speaks of a day when Christ returns and the Jewish people recognize him as Lord. Their weeping is over Jesus and for his mercy and is therefore seen as repentance. But in this verse in Revelation, it's combined with Jesus' expression in the Olivet Discourse, which also leans on Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken then will appear the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now this morning seems to be not of repentance, but a morning Over impending judgment. As we're going to read throughout Revelation, we'll see that verse 7 refers to judgment of the rebellious. When Jesus ascended into heaven, Luke tells us that two angels asked the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. He ascended in clouds which in scripture is often uh, related to the glory of God. And he'll return in the same way. The entire world will see him and the world will mourn because they're opposed to his reign and know that judgment is coming. The elect, those who are in Christ, will rejoice and receive our eternal bodies. John concludes that present reality of the gospel making us a kingdom and priest and that future promise of the lord's return and judgment of the wicked by saying surely let it be so he has the vision of how wonderful the future will be and he's saying bring it on some commentators see verse 7 as the keynote of the whole book verse 8 i am the alpha and the omega says the lord god who is and who was and who who is to come, the Almighty. In Isaiah, God declares himself to be the first and the last. The Alpha and Omega is like saying he's the A to Z. Jews referred to the whole law would say the Alpha to the Tau, those are the first and last letters in Hebrew, meaning everything in between. It's similar to God's declaration in Isaiah forty-three ten. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. The one who says that is the Lord God. That name means the eternal and almighty. One who is over the beginning and the end and everything in between. God the Father is setting his seal on what John is declaring. God is affirming that the revelation is from him. Now, when we read the letters of Paul, Paul often starts out by saying the reason you should listen and obey is because he's an apostle, official representative. This book's different. This book says, this is from God. This is from your creator, the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. That's why you should listen. That's why you'll be blessed if you do. Then he repeats what John declared in verse 4. Jesus was and is and is to come. He has seen us through the past and is with us in the present and will be with us in what is to come. Time is cannot separate us from his love. He can tell us the future because he's already there. What he declares is certain and unchangeable. What a mighty and wonderful, gracious God we serve. If you heard this and will keep it, you will be blessed. That's his promise. May God prepare our hearts for the study of this book, upon which God has set his seal. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give the benediction. (laughs)